So the CSR report is a document which shares the story of what an organization does in terms of impacting that triple bottom line, the economic, environmental, and social aspects of sustainability. We want to show an organization why it is impactful to them to not only do the report, but implement and drive the behaviors to create impacts that are positive for the economy, for the community, and for the environment. And that includes guest loyalty, guest retention, employee retention, attracting new hires and different generations that have a different value set. That's another benefit by communicating through a CSR report, sharing the story of all the behaviors that an organization does and then creating some benchmarks of figures around say natural resource use it could be energy use water use it could be waste management recycling composting also looking at diversity and inclusion what are the levels of hiring from minority populations female population it could be looking at supply chain so how much is purchased locally how much is purchased through responsible or diverse suppliers and looking at all of these things you establish the performance that an organization is at, create some goals, publish them, and then drive behaviors to achieve those goals. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thank you for joining us, and please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at mod.golf, so that you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. If you'd like to receive our monthly newsletter, please sign up on the Mod Golf Podcast website to receive the latest news relating to the innovative future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Gina Rizzi, who is the president of Arcus Marketing Group. Gina is also the founder and principal of Radius Sports Group, which is passionately focused on the intersection between sport and sustainability. So before I get into that too much more, I would like to introduce Gina to the show. Gina, thanks so much for being here today, and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Thank you, Colin. I'm excited to be here today. Good stuff. So yeah, we had a chance to talk at the PGA show. We were going to have the recording there. The, the planets didn't quite align. So now we have this opportunity now. So I'm really excited because of the things that you do in golf and sports and the alignment on the innovation piece and the sustainability piece, these are great things that need to be talked about even more in sport, especially with a charitable platform that you're also helping to invigorate and bring together. So what you're doing here is really about making connections, Gina. So without getting into that too much, I'm, I'm going to let you start first here. Why don't you Tell us a bit about your own personal and professional backstory to get us going here, Gina. Yeah, absolutely. So I own two companies, so Arcus Marketing Group and Radius Sports Group, and founded the first one, Arcus, about nine years ago. The backstory really in my personal journey and what got me doing what I'm doing, which is really focused on connecting sustainability with golf and sustainability with sport, and then being able to share the stories around that through marketing and communications. What propelled me into that really goes back a lot of years, what I would call my pivotal moments in my life that were moments that shaped who I am and where I am today. And starting back from the point of growing up in a small town in the Midwest in Michigan, my first job was working on a dairy farm, one of the most well-known farms in the city. And it was a very small town, but what I did there when working for the farm was I did odd jobs. And so things like cleaning out the manure out of the dually pickup trucks, and I'd get paid 20 bucks an hour to do that. Not the most glamorous work, but it was a lot of money to a kid at that time. And it was honest work. And what that really taught me was that I didn't want to do that the rest of my life, but <laughs> right. also but also that I appreciated it and I appreciated the hard work and the fact 
of whether you're in a small town or a big city, it's a community that makes things happen and that we have to come together to achieve things. So that really shaped my desire to be in the social sustainability realm. And then from an environmental perspective, we lived in the country, so I always had an extreme appreciation for nature. My dad gardened, we had a compost pile. I just always was very interested in nature and being a good steward of the environment. So later in life, fast forward, after going to school, I attended Michigan State and, and the University of Notre Dame. I went on to, I had various jobs with Time Inc., including Sports Illustrated, and the last job I had before becoming an entrepreneur was working for Avis. And at that time, there were several pivotal things that were happening in my life personally that caused me to really reflect on what I was doing in business and how I could make connections between business performance and helping people and the community and the environment. And so that was kind of that moment that there were some things that had happened in my life at the time that hit me that I realized I don't just want to wake up and go to work every day and do a business job and that's it. I realized I wanted something more. Right. So before we dive into that, I, from what the story you, you've told me before, and I've actually seen in a great video that you have of a speaking engagement you have that I will actually include in the show notes for people to see afterwards, is uh, you really had the opportunity with Avis of shaping the role that you wanted to create. It wasn't forced upon you. So that gave you that great opportunity. In a way, you were being an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur, as we like to call it, a, an entrepreneur inside of an organization. So is it fair to say that that really gave you an opportunity to start to build your entrepreneurial muscle? right at Avis there? Oh, it absolutely did. So it was a very exciting time in my career. And what had happened at that time was I had progressed throughout the company through several different roles. And one day I received a call from our president and he offered me a new position on the phone with the caveat that I had to accept the job right then. I needed to hop on a plane and the next day I needed to show up in Rhode Island. And he assured me, he said, don't worry, Gina, we're gonna figure out the details, the compensation, everything, you're gonna be happy, we'll figure it out later. So when you receive a call like that from a president of a company like Avis, you just jump in with both feet. I mean, there's no questioning. And that was a very pivotal moment in my career. Yes. And let's expand upon that because it's a great story. Now, this is really one of those defining moments. Yep. We all have those few defining moments in our life, whether they're personal, professional, or combination thereof, that we can look back that we made certain decisions. And then that's the course that then allowed us to live the next chapter of our life and move forward. So if you expand upon that, so if I understand you first showed up, talk about the diversity and inclusion piece that I believe you showed up at that boardroom, a very large boardroom. And how many women were in that room? One. Me. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't that long ago, was it? No, no it was not. <laughs> it wasn't. So uh, we'll get into that piece later of how that informs you of how the culture that you've created with Arcus and Radius on that diversity piece too. But let's stick with this moment here. So that gave you the opportunity. Then you started working with Roger Penske. And I know he's been very influential on your life. So can you expand upon that as far as the influence he's had on your life? And then the next step that led you to taking the entrepreneurial leap of faith and having the courage to leave this ascending career that you had to embark on your own personal journey. So yes, yeah, so when I showed up that day in Rhode Island, the room was filled. There were about 12 men and me. And one of those men was Mr. Roger Penske. And Mr. Penske is, I would say, one of the most influential, inspiring entrepreneurs of my time and of the last several decades. 
he has just impacted so many things in business with over nine business units and highly successful, high performing. In addition to that, really helped with the city of Detroit. So I have a lot of respect for him and I'm fortunate to call him a friend. But showing up in the room that day and not knowing really what I was getting into until I got there, Mr. Penske looked around the room and it was basically a deal getting done between Avis and Penske Corporation, Penske Automotive Group, and Penske Racing. Yes. Mr. Penske said, okay, well, the deal's kind of coming together. How are we going to move this forward? And our president said, well, she's sitting right next to you and she's got this. So kind of was a big unknown. Okay, we knew that, that we had this deal, but the path forward, it was a blank slate. And so Avis literally said to me, chart out what you want to do with this, what you want to build within this organization. And so it had to include expanding Avis locations off airports at Penske Automotive Dealership. So that was a huge part of it, new construction. And then beyond that, they said, okay, well, we're creating a whole new department here. So you need to figure out how to make it revenue generating, how to make it innovative. And so I really had this like little microcosm of a company within a company that I was able to build, which was so cool. And I loved it. I loved the opportunity to build something. So what I did was I piled all the things I'm passionate about within that. And so that included building the locations and the sites, but also it included charitable work and partnerships with nonprofits. It included sports marketing. And it included environmental sustainability. And that wasn't something that had really been a focus at Avis previously. So I packaged all that up together and really charted it out for them and showed them how all of this could either save money or make money for the company and at the same time do good things. And I loved what I did. So it progressed for a while, um, several years. It went very well. We developed the first Avis carbon footprint reporting for North America. I worked with organizations like the Make-A-Wish Foundation, ran sponsorships in racing. We won the Daytona 500 one of those years with sponsoring the Penske car. Our dealership locations that we built were doing very well. So overall, it was a really good deal and everybody was happy. Everything was great. And then I was offered a big promotion. And that was another pivotal moment. Now, I love this part of the story. So this is right around 2008, 2009, that time around the Great Recession here. So yes. there's people getting laid off left, right, and center around you. So companies are shrinking. But you actually get a great opportunity to expand your career within Avis. So tell us what you did with that opportunity. Yes. So the opportunity, at this time, our former president who had brought me on to that position had retired. And our new president, he called me, offered me the promotion, said, you know, we want you to, to come to headquarters. We want you to do this huge promotion. We see you as being potential C-level at some point. So it was really amazing offer. And I loved everybody that I worked with, by the way. And I loved what I did. I loved my job. So what do you do when you're in the middle of the Great Recession and that happens? I did what probably most people would not do. I quit. You quit. It's like, and wow. I, yes, I quit my job. And I had so many people ask me at the time because it, like left and right, people were getting laid off from companies. I had so many people ask me, why would you quit such a stable job and a great promotion and a successful company with longevity that you're happy with? And why would you even do that? I had to think about it a little bit. I had put thought into it before I quit. But my response to them was, and I'll never forget this, it just came out. I said, if somebody gave me a million dollars and they said, I want you to take this million dollars, would you bet on a corporation or would you bet on yourself? 
I would bet on me all day long. Right. I bet on me because I have control over me. And I know that my performance is as good as, as my expectations of myself and how much I push myself. So to me, it was winner takes all. And the thing was for me and why I would quit something that I loved doing was I felt like, you know what? I love this so much. Taking a promotion and potentially leading a company like Avis, which is a great company, I'd be doing carbonal operations and I'd be, you know, dealing with Wall Street. I'd be managing what it takes to run a Fortune 500 company like that, which is great. And I fully respect the leaders there. But what I would love doing was the job that I had created within Avis, which was a role that you'd have to be promoted out of at some point. So that's when I made the decision, you know what, I'm going to start my own company and I'm going to fold all these things that I'm doing that I love into my own business. Right. And so in 2010, that's when I quit and I started Arcus. And what was pretty cool was when I quit literally that day, our president called me and he said, Gina, I understand you're not going to competitor. Thank you. He goes, I understand you want to be an entrepreneur. He goes, I totally admire that because I want you to fly out here to Persephone next week and let's have lunch. Let's talk about this. So I said, okay. He goes, I know I'm not going to convince you because you want to be an entrepreneur. And I know, I know you, you're stubborn. I'm not going to convince you otherwise, but fly out here and let's have lunch. So I did. And he said, you know what? I respect that you're leaving. The door's always open if you want to come back. He goes, but I don't want you to go far. We want to be your first client. And I was like, holy cow. Yeah, I'll, I'll yes, please. So I left without any expectation of something like that. Right. And when that in my lab and I continue to work with the people I love and carrying on some of the things I had initiated, it was just a bonus. So I was really thrilled starting out my own company with a client under my belt. Yeah, no doubt. What I love about that story too is, well, first you took that leap of faith to become, not not to become an entrepreneur, you already were an entrepreneur. You were inside of Avis. So that was really your training ground that you actually learned what works and what doesn't. And then you were, you were ready. You were ready to go at that point there. But the fact you actually had the courage and the resolve to do it. Entrepreneurship, as you very well know, we talk about on the show all the time, it is hard and often could be very lonely and difficult. Talk about customer product fit. <laughs> your first customer is your previous employer. So you knew you were already on to something great there. So it wasn't just what you were passionate about, but you saw, as all entrepreneurs need to, what problem are you solving? What are you addressing? Yes. What pain point or gap or opportunity are you filling? Which leads to where I want to go next. So let's talk about Arcus. So what was the business model you started with? And then we're going to take that into Radius. And of course, eventually, because we do talk about the innovation of golf, where we first met, kind of rewinding the whole tape here, but the impact you're having on the sustainability side within the golf industry. And we will get into that. But let's start with telling us a bit about Arcus and then also leading into Radius. Yes. Arcus, when I founded it, I had four areas and still do. And the four areas are business to business marketing, media optimization, sports marketing, and corporate social responsibility, which corporate social responsibility, including environmental sustainability, social sustainability, community engagement, diversity and inclusion, employee engagement, charitable giving, all of that rolls into CSR or corporate social responsibility. So I work primarily in that company. We work with Fortune 500 companies primarily. And what had happened with the evolution from Arcus to the creation of Radius is that in the first five years of operating Arcus, I was seeing an overlap between sports marketing and CSR. 
And that was really something that I saw when I was with Davis too, which is I was always looking for ways to create synergies and do strong business, creating business returns or savings, and then drive good behaviors in environmental or social sustainability at the same time. I was seeing overlap in sports marketing and CSR with sponsor activation. So examples being working with Verizon on their Don't Text and Drive platform, working with Miller Coors on their Drink Responsibly platform, working with Mazda on its STEM programs. So I was seeing all these things where corporations were not wanting to just slap their name on an arena and just have the naming rights. They actually wanted something that was engaging and had some sort of positive impact. So about four years ago, I entered a joint venture within golf. And as part of that, it was really focused on promoting sustainability in golf. And in that joint venture, we published the first corporate social responsibility report for the golf industry in North America and quite possibly in the world. I can't verify in Europe or in the Australia or in Africa. Or I can't verify everywhere, but I can tell you North America for sure was the first CSR report in golf, which is really tremendous because for years, more than 75% of our top 250 global corporations have been doing CSR reporting using the Global Reporting Initiative, which is a widely acclaimed and internationally accepted standard for sustainability reporting. These large corporations have been doing that for years now. Right. The sports industry, not so much, and golf definitely didn't. So by publishing that first CSR report for the Olympic Club, it made a statement that golf as an industry is willing to hold itself accountable and is willing to do what it takes to continually improve and help both the community and the environment. It already, there's so much, as you know, there's so much charitable impact through golf. So golf's been doing well with that. But what we really haven't done a great job in is communicating all of that. And so the CSR report was a great step in sharing the story of an individual club, but really opening that book. And since then, the PGA of America has published a social responsibility report. The USGA has done something as well. So we're starting to share those stories a little bit more and then keeping a focus on transparency and continuous improvement. So after we left that joint venture, I established our subsidiary radius, which is 100% focused on sports and sustainability and primarily golf. Right. There's so many reasons why, as you know, sustainability is important for sport and why golf is important for sustainability, which I can get into as well. Right. And we'll definitely talk about the expand on the charitable aspect that golf offers. And if I I get this right, I think Steve Mona from We Are Golf had put out the stat that golf actually raises more money for charities than all other professional sports combined. So I definitely want to get your input on that. But I do want to rewind a little bit here so people understand what this corporate social responsibility CSR is. Let's expand on the whole idea of sustainability because some people that are listening may get this. They may need to know a little bit more. And some people think we talk about sustainability that they're just talking about the environment, where, of course, you talked about economic and also social responsibility, what we actually call the triple bottom line, that particular saying, and how that impacts business. So I'd like to hear about the report, the first one that you actually did. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that it actually had outcomes or recommendations for how this can positively affect your business with the financial sustainability side of that with the report. So it's not about just doing the right thing. Yes. As you very well know, when your business focuses on this, yes. this is how you can do the right thing and also it's good for business. Is that fair to say? 
Yes, it is. So the CSR report is a document which shares the story of what an organization does in terms of impacting that triple bottom line, the economic, environmental, and social aspects of sustainability. And one of the benefits to an organization of doing a CSR report is ultimately when we talk about sustainability, and I know that word is overused, quite frankly, but it is the word, but we're focusing on a continuity of something for the future to not Mm -hmm. have to go without it in the future. And so we want to focus on the continuity of the business itself. So if an organization is going to do a CSR report, we want to show them why it is impactful to them to not only do the report, but implement and drive the behaviors to create impacts that are positive for the economy, for the community, and for the environment. And that includes, if we're talking about an individual course, it can include membership loyalty, guest loyalty, guest retention, employee retention, attracting new hires. And that's a whole conversation and an episode in itself, which I'm sure you've discussed around millennials and the different generational values that are placed on things. So attracting different generations that have a different value set, that's another benefit by communicating through a CSR report, sharing the story of all the elements. So looking at all the behaviors that an organization does and then creating some benchmarks or establishing baselines of figures around, say, natural resource use. It could be energy use, water use. It could be waste management, recycling, composting. Also looking at diversity and inclusion, what are the levels of hiring from minority population, female population, it could be looking at supply chain, so how much is purchased locally, how much is purchased through responsible or diverse suppliers, and then employee engagement, that's another huge one is health and safety of employees, training, professional development, engaging them, making sure that they have a voice. And looking at all of these things, you establish the performance that an organization is at from the start with a baseline, create some goals, publish them, and then drive behaviors to achieve those goals through action plans, through establishing what would be called a green team, which would like a grassroots internal organization of different employees who try to move initiatives forward around sustainability. But it's driving behaviors to affect change. And then A lot of times you'll see that companies that do CSR reporting on an average have found 25% savings year over year in their natural resource use by simply monitoring changing behaviors and establishing the parameters that they need to hit, keeping an eye on it in order to get there. So a lot of times there's low-hanging fruit too, right from the onset. So there's savings realized from that. There's potential revenue realized from that, keeping memberships and attracting new members and keeping employees not having turnover. And then also there's, you had mentioned the World Golf Foundation earlier and Steve Mona and some of the things that you get talked about at National Golf Day. There's also the legislative aspect. So showing collaboration with the community and civic organizations, as well as legislators and regulators. So when we do a CSR report, we're being very transparent and we're saying we are wanting to be a good corporate citizen. So let's work together and we want to get in front of any issues. We want to be open in our dialogue. Let's work together um, to be able to impact our communities. 
right? And one of the interesting things you talked about earlier is powerfully connecting people to causes and making them aware of, especially the sustainability side of the golf industry and other sports. I'd like to get your thoughts on this because with golf courses on averaging about, let's say 150 acres or so, people outside of golf, and I've seen it even here in Vancouver, with the three local golf courses that we have that the city owns, the money they make off of that allows the park board to pay for all the other park services within the city. So you have that ability to do that. But a lot of people look at golf, they think it's elitist, it's public land, it should just be an open park. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize things like the fact you've got this natural biosphere and this wetland that really truly gives back to the natural environment, along with the other factors that golf courses actually have and how things are improving through technology of becoming much more efficient of using the land as you talk about water, pesticides, and other resources also. So with you with the messaging on that, as far as raising awareness and communicating that message, how have you found that, not just in the golf industry, but then to extend that message that you're helping to convey to the public? How have you found that, find that difficult? Do you find people are coming on board and starting to really understand that golf courses aren't this elitist piece of grass that's taking up natural resources and shouldn't be there? Yeah. Okay. I love this conversation. So we have to do more of sharing the great benefit of a golf course. There's a growing amount of data out there. Um, The University of Minnesota and the USGA have been doing some testing the last several years around alternative land use. And you mentioned that some folks may think a park is better than a golf course. Well, a golf course has I'm going to get into all the environmental benefits, but on top of the environmental benefits, it provides a lot of jobs. It provides that charitable giving, which just a plain green space, a park wouldn't necessarily provide. Now, what are the environmental benefits that the golf course can provide? The Golf Course Superintendents Association of America is doing a really great job of rolling out their state best management practices. They want all 50 states to have an established handbook or guide for superintendents to reference and for communities to be able to read and reference. They want all 50 states by 2020. This handbook covers things around water management, integrated pest management, cultural practices, energy use. There's a range of topics in that. But I will tell you some specific examples that our superintendents and our agronomists out there, the golf courses are using to help provide communities with benefits are golf courses in the green space. They provide surface and stormwater runoff benefits, including filtering pollutants. They provide green space to reduce urban heat island effects in more heavily populated areas or dense areas. They provide carbon sequestration. Many golf courses nowadays are doing whatever they can to promote pollinators. And whether that's actual beehives or planting specific plants to attract them, they're doing what they can to promote pollinators. They're preserving wetlands and they're promoting wildlife habitat. And with that, one that we work with specifically in Hawaii, Mauna Kea Resort, they actually have the Nene Staper, which is an endangered species mm-hmm. for Hawaii. They do whatever they can to promote habitat for the Nene, including signage and education for their members and their guests. And they've seen a tremendous amount of growth in the Nene population because of what they're doing there. So courses, in addition to those environmental benefits, you kind of touched on this. A lot of them are starting to look at how can we be a multi-purpose course as well? Like how can we provide other benefits for the community, such as being able to walk during evening hours or early morning hours, sledding in the winter, community functions, 
a lot of courses are trying to really increase their accessibility to the community. Yes. And not only does that create a better relationship with the community, but it also creates an opportunity for more participation in the sport of golf. Uh, absolutely. And we are seeing that even with some golf-centric examples. I had on the podcast a few months ago, a gentleman by the name of Steve Rosen, who's the GM of Indian Wells Golf Course, where in the evenings they've created this experience called Shots in the Night. So now they are not only utilizing the golf course more, but they're also bringing in a completely different customer base that's non-golfers to experience golf for a first time and then come back afterwards and people are coming back and then say, hey, I would like to take a lesson now. Or maybe they just come back and they have lunch or brunch with their family. But for them, it's once again, it's great for business. It's good for the bottom line. It gets people out there, which as we know, in any business, especially bricks and mortar ones, getting people to your place of business is the hardest thing. And once you have them there, you, you have to do everything in your power to exceed their expectations to keep them coming back and they're doing a good job of that there. Absolutely. That's so cool. Yeah, it, it really is. So, hey, I, gotta, I wanna switch gears a little bit here and I wanna get back to what you're talking about with entrepreneurship and your relationship with Roger Penske. I like one of the things you talked about in that boardroom there, yourself and the dozen men. And it seems like they really gave you that opportunity as an entrepreneur to just figure stuff out as you go, have a framework, but... I've heard this expression before, you need to look for clarity rather than demand certainty. And it sounds like that's what they did to give you that opportunity. And it sounds like you've really embedded that into the DNA of your businesses also as as you go along here. You have a guiding North Star, but it sounds like you also figure things out as you go as other opportunities reveal themselves. Is that true? Yes. So one of the things with Roger Penske that he does, he has nine different business units. It could be more today. He grew everything from the ground up, first of all. And those business units, he looks for synergies between them. Right. So how can they be doing business together or utilize the benefits or services of another one? And then taking those synergies and maximizing those. And then he does it with his partners as well. So when he does business with a partner in one area, they look at how do we make this a very rich relationship and really maximize partnership. Well, I worked very closely within that world at that time, and that made such an impact on me in terms of how I view business opportunities and how I view running my businesses. And that's why Arcus and Radius fit so well together, because Arcus is the marketing arm, Radius is the sustainability consulting, and Radius can pull from Arcus for the marketing execution and communications PR um, implementation, social media, all of that stuff, we can pull from Arcus and be able to not only consult and implement best management practices around sustainability with whether it's an association level like the PGA or whether it is an individual course level, but we can help communicate that out and communicate it externally, not just speaking to ourselves internally within the golf industry, but also getting the word out externally to different stakeholders. And so that whole synergy that I was a part of and witnessed and was very fortunate to learn from Mr. Penske was something that I've been able to apply to my own organization. And it sounds like you've built several partnerships to really propel you forward. So I'd like to cite some examples in a moment here. But I I love this entrepreneurial saying, and that is, if you want to go fast, 
go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And it sounds like for you, what also you've learned, I guess, walking to that boardroom, the reason you were there is because there was a deal going down between Penske and Avis. Yes. So they weren't doing it individually. They weren't competing. Right. They realized that one plus one equals three in that case there. So early on in the formation of Arcus and then and then Radius, you did, of course, mention your first customer being Avis. Mm-hmm. But can you tell us then other partnerships that have aligned with you that have really helped move you forward with your businesses? Yeah. So, well, with Arcus, we've done work with Diversity and Inclusion Front. We've done work with PepsiCo, Verizon, and numerous other larger organizations that, again, in my career, I had some responsibility for promoting best management practices around supplier diversity when I worked for Avis. To be able to work with clients, large corporations that have very well-established and mature DNI programs has been a blessing because I've been able to apply my own past experience to the partnerships and then learn also best management practices from other organizations. So in working with companies like that, that's helped propel us from just kind of learning best management practices, how to make a DNI program successful. Those are some examples in DNI and environmental sustainability. We did some work with Walmart and Sam's Club, and they are very strong in that and supply chain. So I'm looking at, again, supplier diversity and supply chain through them. So those were a couple of the partnerships early on. Right. Mazda, we still work with today. They do a lot around environmental sustainability. We do a lot with them with motorsports. And they do a lot with lightweight products and very efficient products. And then they do social sustainability within STEM and engaging schools to help them understand technology and and some of those sustainability benefits as well. So that one has also been very influential and still is. Nice, nice. So as we finish up here, a couple more things I want to ask you here. Once again, getting back to really your why, your purpose, especially with Radius, and that is to focus on that intersection between sport and sustainability. On the Mod Golf Podcast, we always love to talk about the future of golf, but also about other sports too. So I'd like to get your thoughts and where you see the opportunities to further tap into the growth, the intersection between sport and the sustainability platform. You know, I want to talk about DNI on this because, and I know you've heard this before, and I know you share similar beliefs in not just golf, but other sports. Some do better than others, but there's still an opportunity to increase our particularly, and one of my focus areas is supplier diversity, increase opportunities for minority and women-owned, veteran-owned, gay-lesbian-owned businesses that maybe they haven't been aware of the opportunities within the sports world. I think there is a big opportunity from a supplier diversity perspective within the sports world or supplier inclusion within the sports world. So, and the thing about that is, and we've seen this through the work that we do with the PGA of America, we help with their supplier inclusion initiatives. And we've seen where you get a diverse supplier working within the industry who hasn't been in the industry before. It not only opens up the door to that supplier growing their business, but it also opens up the door to their community so that their friends and family now become more interested in the sport. And I wouldn't say this doesn't just apply to golf, but I can cite specific examples within golf where it does, where we see player participation start through a family of a diverse supplier. 
And that player participation can lead to competitive play. And the more that we have of that, the more opportunity that we have to grow. Yeah. And I'm assuming that you have a a strong relationship and probably a formal partnership with what the PGA does with PGA Reach and PGA Works. And I've had Sandy Cross on the program before and a good friend with her now because they really understand the growth of the game. Like you just touched on there, Gina, is most people think we talk about diversity. It means more people that aren't, well, let's just call it what it is, middle-aged white guys like myself. Or, or older playing golf that you are then tapping into underrepresented communities and ethnicities and people of different backgrounds. But it's not just the recreational side of golf. It really is about the, what is it now, up to an $85 billion a year industry. And people don't realize that. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity there mm-hmm. to diversify the workforce supply chain along that. So is that what you're doing? You're not doing that in isolation? It's, I'm assuming you've got some type of a partnership with them that you're both moving this forward together? Yes, definitely. Yeah, we've been working with PDA of America for over a year now, and we have a formal partnership in place. We've seen some great success, a lot of growth within the amount of exposure and reach that we're getting to talk to and invite diverse suppliers into the industry. And as you said, the $84 billion industry, there's a lot of opportunity there. And it's presenting the opportunity. It's extending, as Sandy will talk about, Sandy is amazing and has achieved so much with PG of America DNI program. But as she'll talk about, it's about extending the invitation and then asking them to dance. So it's making sure that they're aware of the opportunities and then inviting them to participate. With the World Golf Foundation, last year, I chair the Supplier Diversity Subcommittee of the Diversity Task Force of the World Golf Foundation. And last year, we did the very first supplier diversity workshop for the industry. And we had major players in the room from the USGA to the IAGA, PJ Magazine, Top Golf, who were there to be educated and learn and share ideas. Okay. All right. Change ideas around supplier diversity and how to implement a program within their organization. We also had a guest speaker from U.S. Tennis Association come in and speak about how they've applied some of these things within tennis. And one of the things that our speaker spoke about was there's kind of this fallacy that when you talk about supplier diversity, it's like affirmative action, like saying, like, you must give this piece of business to this company. It's not that at all. What it is, is extending the opportunity, extending the communication to that company. And like any business, all of us, I am a woman-owned business. I would never want somebody to say, we're going to give you the business because you're female. I want them to say, I'm going to give you the business because you're the best. Right. Any organization that we are talking with, I guarantee they're feeling the same way. They want it because they're the best. So that's one of the perceptions around supplier diversity is that we're forcing something and it's not it at all. What we're focused on is extending the invitation, providing the opportunity, and really engaging folks from all areas so that we can be more inclusive. Love that. You nailed it. So, hey, well, I just want to ask you a couple more questions before I let you go here, kind of flipping things around. I want to get back to golf in a very personal way. So I asked most of my guests this question. I want you to share, because I, I know that you're a recreational golfer. Please share your first ever golf experience and also share your favorite, awesome, personal golf moment. Okay. Yeah, I got that. So 
I am a recreational golfer. I enjoy it very much. I don't do it often enough, as I'm sure you hear many people say. <laughs> so yeah. my first golf experience, actually, I lived in Houston at the time. I worked for 3M. And my boss, I'm going to say his name, his name is David Harris, who is an exceptional human being. This was my first job out of college. He said, Gina, I want you to learn how to play golf. And I said, really? I never had played before. And he said, yep, I want you to learn how to play golf because you're going to find that it's going to bring you so much value and benefit being in business. He goes, I am going to set up golf lessons for you. I said, okay. So he hunted down a, a lady that he knew at a club and sent me over there and I took golf lessons with her and it was fantastic. So I'm so happy that I took that first step. That was my first experience. The most influential or impactful experience for me was same company. When I was with 3M, I won an incentive trip one year and we went to Maui and I was golfing at Wailea and my future boss, he wasn't my boss at that time, was in my foursome and he was actually riding in the cart with me. And about midway through the game that day, he said to me, you know what? I really like you and we're opening an office in Phoenix, Arizona. We want you to open the office for us. We want you to get us started out there. And they were from a sister business unit, which was in the magazine advertising, which was then later sold to Timing, which is how I got over to Time. Right. So I got the job on the course, never met them before in my life. That was definitely one of the most memorable or impactful experiences I've had. So it was a fulfilling prophecy then. He was bang on correct there that it quite literally, it helped you do business. Yeah. It, it could not get more business success like right there. Absolutely. That wouldn't have happened otherwise, that opportunity. No. I love about the first part of the story there too. It gets back to that welcoming invitation side of golf that people need to be more intentional about. And of course, with the invite her hashtag campaign that has been going for less than a year now. It's not contrived. It is so important yeah. to move that forward because all these stories that we hear, and you just shared one there, that you were invited. Otherwise, you would have never picked up a golf club. It's like, well, why would I ever do that? I don't have any friends that, that play. I don't have anybody that looks like me, sounds like me, talks like me, that plays the game. I've got a hundred other things to do. Why would I do that? Nope. But the fact you were welcomed and you were invited, that it just made all the difference in the world. Yes, definitely. Good stuff. Okay, last thing I want to get back to you as an entrepreneur now. On the Mod Golf Podcast, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to what we talk about here, and a lot of them are what I call pre-startup. They may not even have an idea yet. They've got that entrepreneurial DNA like you and I have had for a long time, haven't quite had the opportunity or the timing's not quite right to unlock that or go for it and take that leap like you did by quitting your job. What advice can you give for both entrepreneurs, individuals that are considering entrepreneurship, kind of give them a little bit of a boost and also organizations that need to become more entrepreneurial and looking for entrepreneurial talent within their organization and support them to actually innovate a little more. So, mm. so what are your recommendations there for entrepreneurs out there? I love those questions. So the first one for entrepreneurs to take it to the next level, you know what? Action. The biggest recommendation I can give, well, I've heard so many times people say, well, I thought of this invention or I thought of this product or I thought of this company. And then it's always past tense I thought of. I really believe that it takes action. Right. So yes, do research, but don't get into the whole analysis paralysis thing. Do research, do a quick business plan. It doesn't have to be super detailed, but 
show some plan of action and then take the step, like actually do it. And it, it could be testing something in a smaller market or with a partner, but take the action instead of just continually putting it off because it's when you start moving that you start learning and making mistakes and figuring out how you need to pivot and where the better opportunity might be if you didn't see it in the first place. So definitely taking those steps of action would be my recommendation there. And then in terms of corporations, focus on trying to be more innovative or attracting more innovative staff or personnel. Empowerment is such a huge thing that when I look back at my career with Avis, like I said, literally said, all right, go to it. We want you to chart out on this piece of paper what your plan is, what all the different various buckets. Like I had a whole flow chart that I created and then figured out the math and the ROI and the calculations and what we needed to do. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if they hadn't empowered me and given me that freedom to create. It doesn't mean you don't hold people accountable. It doesn't mean that you don't have high performance standards, but it does mean that you give them flexibility and some time and freedom and empowerment to be able to create something. Yes. Thank you for sharing both of those points. And on the last one there with reference to finding entrepreneurs within an organization, and that really comes down from leadership and the culture that you've had the good fortune at Avis and other places to be exposed to. And I'm sure you've been at some places where it hasn't been so great, where they've been bosses rather than leaders or micromanagers, where they give you that opportunity. Sure, you are accountable, but they give you the opportunity to grow and stretch, learn and experiment a bit and try new things. And there isn't that fear of failure is going to be the death sentence for your career, that there's going to be some negative connotation attached to that. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you've taken that and applied that to everything that you do with Arcus and with Radius. Yes. And you know, I would add to the other piece for entrepreneurs, both on their own or with an entrepreneurial mindset within an organization. So the action was the one thing I mentioned, but having a great idea is not enough. You have to substantiate it too. So I do think that there are a lot of folks that think that they can just say, we need to do X, Y, and Z. And because I think it makes sense, I think we're going to get more business, whatever reasons that there are. But without actually putting a pencil to it and actually figuring out the data, so data can be your best friend in terms of getting things accomplished and getting approvals for those folks that are internal at organizations. You have to prove it out, figure out, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It can be estimates, but you need to show that you're actually really putting the thought in behind it and you're substantiating what you're recommending, not just throwing a pie in the sky idea out there. That's a great point. You need to validate your idea. You don't, last thing you want to be doing is creating a solution that's looking for a problem. Right. Yeah, exactly. And Sally, there's a lot of entrepreneurs. You see them on Shark Tank being pitched quite a bit. And mm -hmm. and it does make you cringe and feel sorry for them a little bit to see it's, yeah, go out there and talk to some people and observe and validate what you've done. And you had very early validation with your ex-employer immediately hiring you. So that was validation right there that you were onto something that providing something that someone actually wanted. And there was a need that you were filling. Yes, absolutely. So, hey, why don't we end it there? This has been really a broad ranging conversation. I've loved this and you've covered a lot of ground here. I've learned a ton also. I will also make sure in the show notes to include links to what you're doing with Radius Sports Group and also with Arcus. But before we go, why don't you let our listeners know where they can find out more information about the good things that you're doing? Sure. Yeah. If you either website arcusmarketinggroup.com and it's A-R-C-U-S marketinggroup.com or radiusportgroup.com. 
both of those have a lot of information on what we're doing. There's news postings on both of them as well. So you can find some good background info. Good stuff. So once again, as I mentioned in the show notes, I'll include all of those links to make it nice and easy so our listeners don't have to furiously write all that down while they're doing their other things while listening to a podcast episode. I'll also make a point of expanding on a few things you talked about with entrepreneurs or the things that they should do to validate their ideas first. Because of course, the idea is like less than 1% of the actual work as we know, as you said, action, you got to start moving on things. So I'll include things like links to the lean startup so they can get ideas there of how to get going in a very minimal way. And I'll also include things such as the business model canvas that you can start filling in all these components that you need as a business with your idea and the partnerships and all the other key elements that you need to. So I'll include that on there also, because you did talk about that without actually naming the business model canvas. Yeah. So we'll do all that good stuff too. Awesome. Yeah. So, hey, Gina Rizzi, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for spending the time with me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. And I, uh, I've got a feeling you and I are going to cross paths in person again very soon. And I definitely look forward to that. Oh, I believe so. So, hey, thanks so much for being here and let's talk very soon, okay? Such a pleasure. Thank you, Colin. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Gina Rizzi, who is the principal of Radius Sports Group and the founder and president of Arcus Marketing Group. I'd love to hear what you found interesting and useful in this episode. So please share your thoughts by emailing me at colin at modgolfpodcast.com and I promise to get back to you. If you'd like to learn more about the innovative and inclusive work Gina collaborates on with Fortune 500 companies and sports properties to activate marketing, sustainability, and corporate social responsibility, go to our episode page where we've included links and photos to provide you with additional content. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, British Columbia Golf and Nextlinks for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. And I also want to send a big welcome to our newest sponsor, Golf Genius Software. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. Are you a golf course owner or operator struggling with the complexities of running tournaments? Do you want to spend less time running them while increasing revenue and profit margins? Check out our friends at Golf Genius to learn how they can help make the magic happen at golfgenius.com. Please join me next time when I speak with Larry Gahuli who is an agronomist for the United States Golf Association and an advocate for the Tee It Forward program. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast on iTunes. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show while you're there. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.